so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Joustra to talk about Herman Bovink and the centrality of ethics in the Christian life. Dr. Joustra is an assistant professor of religion and theology at Redeemer University. She also serves as an associate researcher at the Neo-Calvinist Research Institute at the Theological University in Compton. She's also the director of Redeemer's Albert M. Wolter Center for Christian Scholarship, and she earned a PhD in Christian ethics from Fuller Theological Seminary and the Free University, as well as an MDiv from Calvin Theological Seminary. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square podcast. Over the last few years, you, along with many others, have been working on a really exciting project of kind of translating and publishing what will be a three-volumed Reformed Ethics by Herman Bovink. I would love to hear a little bit about the background of this project, kind of your interest and kind of um, your focus on Bovink as an ethicist. And also, maybe what has led to some of the resurgence that we've seen in the last few years surrounding Herman Bovink and his works? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for having me on today to talk about this really exciting stuff. You're absolutely right. Bovink has become really almost hip, which is very surprising. I know of Bovink from before this kind of resurgence, uh, and it's been fascinating to watch the way that he has become so popular among so many different theological traditions. Uh, but I got to know Bavink back in seminary, officially. I had been really kind of aware of the theological tradition out of which Bavink comes and, and uh, the theological tradition that he played a major role in, uh, the Dutch Reformed tradition, but I hadn't known him by name until seminary. And I remember I came into seminary very fresh-faced, really didn't know much about theology, just felt this strong sense that this is where God would have me. And I really only knew in this Dutch Reformed world about this guy named Kuiper who said some things about square inches and that, you know, God's sovereignty was big. 
And that had really mattered for me uh, as a young adult, as I kind of understood my vocation in light of God's big plan. So I had this real affinity for this guy named Kuiper, even though I didn't really know much about him. And I remember in seminary, one of my professors, who, whose name is John Bolt, who's also, of course, very <laughs> who, who looms large in the Bavink world, given his... Um, the way that he's helped introduce Bavink through translations and edited volumes uh, into, into the English world. But I remember one day he asked me, you know, what theologians are you interested in? And I being very, uh, a very young seminarian and very nervous and didn't really know many theologians, <laughs> uh, that question took me off guard. So I just said, Kuiper. He thought that was lovely. Uh, but he said, if you like Kuiper, you will love Bavink. And I said, that sounds great. Who's Bavink? Uh, and that was the start of all of this was John Bolt just kind of taking me under his wing and saying, if you like Kuiper's ideas, just wait till you get to know Bavink. And I have to say he was absolutely right. Uh, getting to know Bavink has been such a theologically and spiritually enriching project. And for me, uh, both in terms of academically as a scholar and theologian and personally as, as a Christian trying to live faithfully in this world. And so Bavink was someone that I, I got to know then in seminary uh, through some classes in, in my systematic theology classes. We read him. And then I took a very keen liking to one theme. Uh, and this was before Bobbing's ethics was, was well known, uh, the fact that it was there, that there was this manuscript. Uh, and I took a keen interest in a theme that will show up really prominently in his ethics, but hadn't yet been really tied to Bavink in a prominent way, except through John Bolt's dissertation, actually. And that's the theme of the imitation of Christ. And this, to me, I think all goes back to my childhood as a, a child of the 90s. That's when I kind of grew up. Uh, and, and one of those big youth group things that was happening in the 90s was those WWJD bracelets. I don't know if you remember those or, or folks out there. Yeah, they were, they were very hip. And I wore one of those very proudly. Uh, and for me, it was really, again, as a, young, as a young person, very formative to think about that question, what would Jesus do? But I thought about it in very simplistic terms. <laughs> uh, and, and to find Bavink then as someone who thought in those in, in many ways, in that sim- with that similar question, what would Jesus do, but fleshed it out in a rich theological system was, was just captivating to me. And so I really grabbed hold of what he said first about kind of a life of piety and a life of imitation, and then got to know his dogmatics and then finally his broader ethical system. And so when I graduated seminary and took on a uh, a PhD program, John Bolt, again, who is head of this uh, translation project for the Reformed Ethics, invited me to take part in it. My PhD was focused on Bavink's ethics, and I had done some work with, with Bolt before. And so he gathered this team of four other people alongside him. And ever since then, I think that was 2012 or 2013, ever since then, we have been meeting every summer for a number of weeks, usually two to three, I think. And we sit in a room all together uh, for about 10 hours a day and work through page by page, line by line, word by word, Bavink's ethics manuscript to bring it into the form that you all see now in your in your English version. So we've 
made it through, of course, volumes one and two that are already published, and we are almost done with volume three. This summer was supposed to be our final summer, uh, and we ran into some technical glitches, and we can all blame COVID for some of that too, I'm sure. Uh, But next summer, we will complete volume three, and the project in its entirety will be out in the world. Well, know that we're deeply indebted to you. This is something that for me, similarly, I approached Bavink from an ethical perspective. It was actually his ethics that I came to first, which is different than a lot of folks who come to kind of his reform dogmatics. And part of that is just my background as an ethicist and moral philosopher um, and some interest, especially in how he frames up, which we'll get to a lot throughout the conversation. So as you said, the Herman Bavink's Reformed Ethics is a planned three-volume set, which is interesting given kind of Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics that was previously published and then obviously translated into English. And I think that in many ways helped to kind of fuel the resurgence, especially in the English-speaking world. Reformed Ethics has kind of an interesting background. This was not a manuscript that was published in Bavink's day. Obviously, there are a lot of lecture notes. Uh, This is a class that he taught. But I wanted to see if you could unpack a little of the history and kind of what are you guys doing when you meet each summer? What kind of manuscript or or transcript are you working off of? And how did we get that uh, to be able to have this three-volume set? Yeah, wonderful. That's a fantastic story. Uh, and it's, you know, a, a kind, of, kind of archivist's dream story. Uh, because Dirkman Kulin, who's one of the team of four that John Bolt has assembled to work with him on this project, he's a researcher at the Theological University of Kumpen. And he's the one who's put together a critical edition in Dutch of Bobbing's ethics, as well as many, many other works, including his philosophical ethics that's out in Dutch already, too. But Dirk van Koolen is, is a researcher par excellence. Uh, and back in the day, I think it was around 2008, around there, he was working in the Bavink archive. So this, this is an archive that exists, of course, in the Netherlands at the Free University of Amsterdam. And Dirk van Koolen was there. And he was working through all of, all of these, these things for his research. And he found this huge stack of papers that had very little kind of identification. They didn't fit into into anything in the archive as it was. And he realized as he paged through that it was a giant manuscript. It was an 1,100-page handwritten manuscript by Bobink that were really the the content that he drew upon for his lectures as you as you noted when Bavink taught in Kumpen he is of course known primarily as a dogmatician but he taught ethics as well and that was not a kind of fluke thing for Bavink his dissertation was actually on ethics it was on the ethics of Ulrich Zungli so ethics is really a huge part of Bavink the theologian and so he taught ethics at Kumpen and when he taught ethics at Kumpen he used these notes that were this 1100 page manuscript that is what we now see as reformed ethics. But it was in interesting shape <laughs> to turn into an actual volume because the, so the, the papers are, first of all, they, yeah, they're in note form, not in, I'm going to turn this into a publisher to make it a book form. Uh, so there are, you know, additions in the margins, things that are added small in, in line indentations, all, all of this kind of stuff is all in there. You know, you can tell he worked on this and he, he used it in classes year after year. So when he found a different source or when he kind of expanded his ideas, we see that all in the manuscript, which is really interesting, but it also is a really interesting translation and, edit, and editorial question, right? What do you do with those things? Do you say this is a later edition? Do you just leave it as is? And you'll see as you work through the Reformed Ethics in the English version, you'll see that we 
We have editor's notes that will clue you into how we use and how, how we make sense of some of those things. Uh, but if you really want to see the fullness of what Bob Inc. has done and exactly where this is an addition, this is later, etc., Dirk Van Kuhlen's critical edition is where to go for that. He, every single time there is a challenging kind of way of, of thinking through what has Bob Inc. done here, Dirk makes extensive notes about those. Uh, and so we make quite a few notes about them in the English version, but in the, in the critical edition, because it is, of course, a critical edition, Dirk does all of that. But in terms of a manuscript, again, to turn into a book, this is a really interesting challenge. You know, not only are there added notes in the margins and a kind of interlinear added notes, references added in the margin, we also see Bavink using a lot of shorthand because they're his notes, right? So not every sentence is completed. And in fact, not only is not every sentence completed, the manuscript itself is incomplete. Bavink laid this out. As you said, in English, we're going to have three volumes. Bavink, for him, this was a four-volume work. And the last part, or a four-part work, and the last part he, he calls um, man in society or the redeemed person in society. And he talks about family. He has quite a long section on family. And then it ends off, that section is cut short. And then there's simply a list of topics that he hoped to get to. Uh, so not only, again, do we see shorthand within the text itself, the text is also incomplete. Uh, so, you know, there were a number of kind of practical applications in society that he had hoped to get to that he has not ever finished. And then the other, of course, interesting challenge with Bavink, and this one is not unique to his ethics, is that he is so, he moves so deftly between a number of languages. So yes, this is in Dutch and it's old Dutch, uh, which is already challenging. Even to native Dutch speakers, some of this language is very old and, and arcane. But he moves from Dutch to French to German to Greek to Hebrew to Latin <laughs> very swiftly and we no longer do that quite as swiftly today, or many of us do not. Uh, and so that that also makes Bavink in general challenging to translate and, and comes up here as well. Yeah, this is a fascinating project on many accounts. But even as a Baptist, uh, which is kind of interesting, kind of being a Bavink fanboy in some sense, or one who is deeply indebted to his work, um, it's really interesting kind of the, the nature and the shape of his ethics, which I think actually helps us to address some of the big questions about the role of ethics in the Christian life. And in the introduction to volume one, a couple of the editors note that Bavink was kind of keenly aware of a dearth or a great need uh, for a reformed ethics, kind of um, helping to teach this and helping to model this, given a, kind of the emphasis on theology or dogmatics in his day, which I also think is a, a challenge for us today as well, as we often focus on the, having the right beliefs, but we often don't focus on kind of the study of our right actions or our ethics. And that's something that you see beautifully modeled, not only in dogmatics, but also in reformed ethics about this deep kind of intertwined relationship that we'll get to in a second. But I wanted to see why you thought that was the case in his time. Why is there such an kind of not an overemphasis? Because I don't want to say we need to take emphasis off of theology, but we need to bring kind of ethics alongside it and seeing how these two are kind of the primary disciplines of the Christian life. Why is it seen that we in his time and maybe even in ours too, there's kind of a maybe overemphasis or a solo emphasis on theology or dogmatics to the neglect of ethics? Yeah, that's wonderful. And and Bavik, as you say, himself did identify that need. 
I think in the in the introduction they mention another booklet that Bobink wrote called Present Day Morality. Well, that's the English and in, in English translation that will very happily that that little volume will be included in our third volume of Reformed Ethics, so we can get a sense of what he thinks. Some call it present day morality. You could translate it contemporary morality. Either way, uh, that little volume will be included in the in the third volume of Reformed Ethics. And in that, Bavink identifies himself in our circles, he says. And by that, he means Dutch Reformed circles. He's speaking to an ecclesial community at this point. We are greatly lacking, he says, in publications which talk about the moral life and moral principles. And he sees this as a huge, not only, and, and this is exactly what you're saying too, not only an academic issue, but a, a, a deeply kind of Christian life issue to say, you know, we, we don't, have people writing about these moral principles and questions, especially as it relates to the real challenges that we are facing on the ground in our time, right? Because as many of us know, I'm sure neo-Calvinism as a neo-Calvinism, neo-Calvinists like Kuiper and Bobbink were keenly aware of the fact that theology needed to speak to the present day conditions of their life, right? They were very concerned about saying, this is this is what's going on in our world, and we need to make sense of it. We, we ourselves, as people like James Eglinton has very helpfully shown us, are modern and orthodox, to use the language that people describe Bavink. And Bavink took that very seriously, that he was living in a modern time. He was a modern person, and he was an orthodox Christian thinker. And those two, for him, were deeply intertwined. And so he was very concerned about what it looks like to live out the truth of the gospel in his own time. And therefore, it was very obviously concerning to him that there weren't many guides. And one of the interesting questions that results from that is, well, if Bavink was aware that this is an issue, and he had a huge book thinking about just this, why didn't he publish it? Uh, That's been something that's asked many times, right? Because he's identified the issue. He sees it very deeply, both academically and pastorally. And then we never see this this manuscript coming to light for him in a published version. There's a lot of theories about that, uh, and we don't need to get into all of them, but it is a really good question, and many, many relate it to his relationship with the principal ethicist at the Free University, Willem Kaysink, who... Um, was the ethicist at the Free University. So when Bavink moves to the Free University, he's no longer teaching ethics. And one of the theories out there is maybe he felt like this would step on the toes of his colleague. Maybe not. Uh, But Hazink does actually give us a reformed ethics. That's not translated into English. But if you are a Dutch speaker uh, or able to read Dutch, it is readily available online. And it has just a whole host of wisdom. Another very large volume are written by a reformed thinker. But it's a great question. Why aren't people, why weren't people thinking or writing about this? Because clearly they were thinking about it. Uh, and why aren't they today, right? You've, you've already said this doesn't seem like just a problem back then. Uh, and folks like Rich Mao, who is a contemporary neo-Calvinist ethicist, write the same things. Uh, he has a little essay in, in Comet magazine from a couple of years ago where, where he says, you know, reformed folks are very good at <laughs> systematic theology and we have this whole dearth of reformed ethics. So this challenge has not gone away. And in many ways, it's really befuddling to me, <laughs> you know, especially given the robust kind of 
theological riches, I think, that the Reformed tradition has right at its fingertips to draw on for these things. If you look at something like the Heidelberg Catechism, it's right in there, right? The the Ten Commandments have such a, a central part of this kind of tripartite structure of something like the Heidelberg Catechism, which can, you know, colloquially be called sin, salvation, and service, or these three parts of how do you know your guilt, grace, and then gratitude? How do we live in light of what God has done for us? We live according to his law. And, and that's been such a consistent theme within the Reformed tradition. And it's surprising that we don't see very many people fleshing out really what that looks like, right? In we see it in, I think, in bits and spurts in something like the Heidelberg Catechism, which really draws us very clearly to what does it mean to live lives of gratitude? We live out the law that God has laid out in creation and upheld for all of his people in every time and every place. You see it much more in something like the Westminster Large Catechism, which goes into just wonderful detail <laughs> about what each of these commandments means. But we see very, very little of it, uh, surprisingly little of it, applied to the particular challenges of our day. Uh, one person that did do this wonderfully was someone that came after Bob Inc. at the Theological University of Compton, uh, Dauma who's known in many circles for his work on common grace. Uh, he, his dissertation was a wonderful comparison between various thinkers on common grace. But he also has a wonderful volume on the Ten Commandments to go through the pressing questions of his day. He just passed away a couple of years ago. So he, he, was, he was writing this in the 70s and 80s and teaching this in, from you know, the 70s to the 90s. And so he's writing on really hot button questions about marriage and sexuality, life and death, suicide, euthanasia, all of these, all of these kinds of things, creation care, a lot of, a lot of really important issues for his time. But we see very little of that. And honestly, I wish I knew why, but I, I don't have a great answer there. But I lament with Bavink that we don't have it. Yeah, that's one of the things I've noticed even in my circles as one who is kind of closely aligned with the Reformed tradition, but as a Baptist, as distinctly as Southern Baptist with some of those distinctives, it's really interesting, even in our circles too, is that there's this high emphasis on theology and knowing the Word of God, but some of the application slash kind of the nature of how this intersects with the Christian life has, we've seen kind of a dearth over the years. And it's really interesting in the last probably 10 or 15 years, we're starting to see a resurgence kind of overall, but specifically even in Southern Baptist life, kind of a re-emphasis of Christian ethics, as, as Bob Inc. rightfully says, is kind of the one of the two main disciplines between dogmatics and ethics. One of the things I'm glad you mentioned was uh, Dr. James Eglinton. We had him on the podcast. We'll make sure to link th to that uh, for folks who want to know a little bit more about Bob Inc. himself as a man, because that's one of the interesting things in this is it's very easy for us to kind of focus solely on the work that's been produced, not realizing the man that's behind it and the challenges that he's facing. And that's something that Dr. Eglinton and I discussed a lot about. Who was Bob Inc.? Um, and obviously, we could kind of take the conversation that route, but I want to stick a little bit more to ethics. So we'll make sure to link to that podcast episode a little bit more of uh, a wonderful biography that uh, Eglinton put together through Baker um, so people can learn a little bit more about that. Kind of shifting a little bit, I think given the size and the depth of a work like this, obviously we're now at two volumes. There's a planned third volume that you guys are still diligently working on. I think for most people, it can be quite intimidating. Um, this is not a small set, um, even in two volumes. And I think a lot of people, when they think of reading something like this, especially if they don't have a lot of exposure, they may have had one ethics class 
in seminary or may have done a PhD even and not really had to take a lot of ethics classes, philosophical and theological ethics. I think it can be quite intimidating. But the thing that I love about Bob Inc., um, and this is something that Eglinton kind of pointed on out early on to me, was picking up something like The Wonderful Works of God uh, that was recently kind of republished in a beautiful edition for Westminster Seminary Press. That volume, you read it and it's it's devotional. That's almost, and it's not just that volume. I even pick up Reformed Ethics and even Reformed Dogmatics and you start reading and there is a depth there that I'm not even understanding at times. But the way he writes and the way he communicates is just simply beautiful. It's very, very devotional. It's very, very engaging. He's a brilliant writer. But I wanted to see, as we talk about Reformed Ethics, can you give us kind of a 30,000-foot overview of how this is structured? I think sometimes we enter in kind of blind, not realizing where someone's headed. And I think that kind of blinds us and it makes it difficult for us to understand. So can you give us that kind of 30,000-foot overview of the volumes as they're organized and plan to be organized and kind of the structure of how he frames up Reformed Ethics or Christian Ethics? Yeah, wonderful. That's a great question. And I'm going to kind of take it in two parts. And the first is I want to flesh out something that you've highlighted a couple of times. And that's that Bovink thinks really carefully about the relationship between dogmatics and ethics. And I imagine many people listening will be a bit more familiar with his reformed dogmatics, which just makes a lot of sense, right? The the reformed dogmatics are kind of what put Bovink on the map in the English speaking world. And they are in many ways known as his magnum opus. And they're a wonderful, wonderful work. And in it's really fascinating to read if you read the opening of the Reformed Dogmatics and the opening of the Reformed Ethics. He says nearly the same thing about the relationship yeah. between the two. And that's such a beautiful section. It I is. love, love, love that section in, oh, both, in both sets. It's wonderful. And it shows us a couple of things. One, it shows us that it seems like Bavink meant these as companion volumes. And Bavink was also, too, working on them at the same time or we assume he was, given both content and the dating of of this manuscript, given the other manuscripts that help us get there. But as he writes about these two things, Reformed Dogmatics and Reformed Ethics, he's very careful to both closely link them and not confuse them. And so he says, dogmatics, what is that? Dogmatics tells us what God has done for us. And then what is ethics? Ethics tells us what, given that we have received this gift, what we should do. And he further clarifies that by saying in dogmatics, we are passive. What do we do? We are the people who receive a gift. We are the people who believe the good news that has been proclaimed. In ethics, we are no longer passive. We are the agents. We are the people who, having received this gift, go out and do something with it. And so dogmatics, he says, is about the articles of faith Ethics is about the Decalogue, and as we'll hopefully talk about a little bit, he closely links that to the imitation of Christ. And so dogmatics, what is it? What God has done for us. Ethics, what is it? What we now do. And so in that, he's just very typically and I think beautifully reformed in that ethics is all about gratitude. It's not something we do, of course, to get something or to receive something from God. It's something that we do because we have received this amazing, astounding gift of God's grace. And what's also really helpful as we compare these two, the Reformed dogmatics and the Reformed ethics, one of the things that I think is really exciting and helpful for readers, especially who come in with a familiarity with the dogmatics, is that his methodology is very similar in both of them. 
So his methodology in dogmatics is I'm going to take all of this biblical data and then I'm going to go through kind of the history of the church to see what the church has done with this data. And then I'm going to say, this is actually what I think about this, which is both what makes Bobbing so helpful to read and sometimes what makes Bobbing so hard to read because he's so charitable in that section on church history that you can find. And, and my students actually often find this when I assign Bobbing. You can read something and be like, oh, this is very helpful. Oh, this is so good. Oh, he agrees. Oh, wait, no, he thinks this is this is really not right. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and so his, his charitable kind of ecumenism is wonderful. And we see that in dogmatics. It's also there in ethics. He does exactly the same thing. He says, here's the biblical data. Here's how the church has received it. And then here's what I believe that this means for our own time in a very normative way. And so in many ways, that makes this volume a bit more familiar to readers who know Bavink a little bit, because he does the same thing. It's very clear. This is, this is Bavink's methodology, and this is how he works this out, both in dogmatics and in ethics, but of course, dealing with different content. And so then when he, when he developed this ethics manuscript, he laid it out in four parts. And as I already mentioned, that fourth part is unfinished, but it still shows us kind of how he intended to lay this out. The first part is about humanity before conversion. So who are humans? We get a really strong sense of Bavink's anthropology, what is human nature, a very strong sense of what is sin. And then he goes into this really interesting classification of sins, consequences of sins. It's a fascinating kind of breakdown of who are humans and what is sin. And then he goes to part two, which is humanity in conversion where he talks about regeneration, faith, the growth of the spiritual life. And in that part is where we get to my favorite part, uh, his what he calls the heart of the spiritual life, the imitation of Christ. And then part three discusses humanity after conversion. And this is where, in some ways, he gets kind of into the real meat of his reformed ethics, because he's talking about the duties of Christians. Uh, and this is where he goes into his breakdown of the Ten Commandments in very kind of, again, typical reformed fashion. How do we think about ethics? We think about them by by looking commandment by commandment. This is, in many ways, he's he's following people like John Calvin, who who wrote, again, it's a, it's a rather un, a lesser known work of his, but his Harmony of the Last Four Books of the Pentateuch, where he structures everything, every verse in the Pentateuch, according to the Ten Commandments and slots them, slots them into how they apply to, to the various commandments that God has laid out. So part three is this really thick, long, rich discussion of humanity's duties and the Ten Commandments. And then that last part, part four, is how the Christian life should be lived in society. And that's where he talks about the family, where we actually see Bavink's hand on family, uh, and then has this list of things that he wishes he could have gotten into. And I will say just for clarity too, Bavink structures this in a four-part section or, or kind of a four-part uh, structure. And given that the last part, the last section, part four is unfinished, our books and the parts are not equal in length. <laughs> our volumes are only three. And the first volume includes part one and part two, humanity before conversion, that discussion of anthropology and sin, and then converted humanity. The second volume is his part three, 
Humanity After Conversion, where he talks about the Ten Commandments. And our third volume is part four, and then kind of fleshing out some of his other thought on ethics. So we have his work on family in there, which is really, I think, it's fascinating stuff. And as I think readers have seen in his dogmatics, it is so pertinent to the questions we're asking today, right? It seems like Bobbink could be sitting right next to us in North America in 2022 and have these really prescient insights on the challenges that we are facing right now in very practical terms. So we have that section on the family and then a little bit on his uncompleted sections on things like art and science and the state and the kingdom of God. And then some on the relationship between philosophical and theological ethics, because Bavink, this is a whole work on theological ethics, but Bavink also gives attention to philosophical ethics. So we get some of that in volume three as well. Well, I want to pick up on that philosophical and theological ethics question here in a minute. But one of the things that I found really interesting, and I did some research on Bavink and ethics specifically with science and technology. So kind of understanding his reformed ethics as a whole, but then also how that applied to a lot of the challenges of his day, um, which is really interesting to note that even there are technological challenges even of his day with science and technology and these things that he's being pressed about. How does the Christian faith apply and um, navigate some of these big questions? But one of the things, and uh, given that we're both kind of fellow nerds here, I think you'll understand, uh, there was a favorite footnote that I found and uh, a hero of mine, Carl F. H. Henry, who's a fellow Baptist, and he makes a note when he's talking about what is theology and ethics, he actually picked up a very similar paradigm, that God speaking to us is the nature of theology and our response to God is our ethic. And I thought that's really fascinating because Bavink does the same thing. And I, could, I couldn't figure out where was kind of the, the connection point. And so I drove down into some of the footnotes and realized that they're both citing for that kind of initial paradigm, Christoph Ernst Luthart, the German theologian uh, from 1876, who got, says, God speaking to us is the nature of theology. Our response is the nature of ethics. And I found it fascinating that both of these figures who have played such a monumental role in my life, especially in my academic life, we're actually going back and citing someone similar. They're both citing Luthart from 1876, talking about this rich relationship. And that was just kind of a little nerd moment for me of like, man, this is such a beautiful way of understanding that deep and kind of intricate relationship. When I love Bob Inkle say that theology and ethics or dogmatics and ethics are not materially different, yet are formally distinct and should be studied separately, but they are nevertheless kind of intricately tied together. You can't actually pull them apart. And one of the things that you kind of mentioned there, and I wanted to dive in a little bit on, is that question of philosophical ethics or kind of the philosophical background to his ethics. Because I think as we, as English readers, and maybe some who are not as deeply steeped in Bob Inc., we may come to his ethics and not realize that he has kind of a philosophical framework and categories and an approach that is directly influencing his dogmatics and his ethics. And obviously all this lives in kind of a parallel relationship with one another, one influencing the other. But I wanted to see if you could speak to some of those distinctive aspects of Bavink's philosophy that is directly kind of shaping his ethics and how he approaches the text and how he approaches a lot of the challenges. What is the, some of the distinctive aspects of his philosophy that we have to understand or should understand if we want to appropriately kind of navigate his theology and his ethics? Yeah, nice. And I mean, first of all, I think it's it's important to, once again, kind of look at his methodology for thinking through these things, right? Because Bavink, 
will, though questions of theology and philosophy permeate all of these works, he really does want to help distinguish theological ethics and philosophical ethics. And he does that in one way and really one way only. And that is the point of departure, right? So he says, when I am talking about philosophical ethics, I'm doing so as a Christian. And when I'm talking about theological ethics, I'm doing so as a Christian. But in theological ethics, he says, there's only one epistemological source or one source of knowledge that discloses to us how God wants us to live. And that primary source is God's revelation. And so he says, it's that. And then alongside that, our dependence on the Holy Spirit that distinguishes theological ethics from philosophical ethics. And that's why we can see such a strong methodological correlation between his dogmatics and his ethics, because they're both taking their cue from the same source, right? They're both starting with God's revelation, particularly God's revelation in scripture, but also general revelation will will play significantly into that too. But for him, I mean, especially as he is older, you know, one of the things that we've touched on a couple of times without ever fleshing out is there are these different manuscripts that help us understand the ethics manuscript. And all of those manuscripts are student note manuscripts. And one of them comes from a later version of Bobbing's class in 1902, the de Young manuscript, which shows a very different and, and in many ways somewhat the same, but a a very different, at least beginning to his theological ethics courses, because he suddenly goes from the structure that we've just laid out in his reformed ethics, which are, which we see in two earlier student note manuscripts. But in 1902, instead of beginning with this anthropology and this classification of sins, he is beginning with philosophical ethics. And some people might wonder, you know, does that change where he ends? Does that change his conclusions? Does that change his thinking about Christian morality? And it really doesn't. It changes the questions that he's asking. It changes some of these emphases, but it doesn't change his actual focus. It's more like he's kind of changing conversation partner, but not changing conviction because he's, he's saying these questions of philosophy, these questions of philosophical ethics, these questions of what is good and why that philosophy raises are becoming really important in our kind of contemporary conversation. And so he starts talking about all of these, you know, big philosophical names too. People like Kant, people like Reed, interestingly, not people like Nietzsche. Uh, But that's another conversation. And Dirk van Kuhlen makes a very convincing argument, I think, that this doesn't simply mean Bobank doesn't care about Nietzsche, or it simply means in this time uh, in 1902 in the Netherlands, Nietzsche wasn't yet a big name. But that's that's an interesting part of, of his philosophical ethics, that this big name at this point was not a big name for him. But he starts talking about all of these different philosophical systems. In many ways, he does so quite neutrally, um, and just kind of, this is what they say without his kind of classic at the end, and this is why they're wrong, or this is why they're right. But he's, he's very keen to, to take seriously the insights of philosophical ethics and then kind of work them out in reformed ethics. So in that, we see things like his major theme, no doubt that you talked about with James Eglinton as well, this theme of the organic and the really important, the centrality for him of this idea that God as triune is unity and diversity. And the God who is unity and diversity has created this cosmos that has 
built into it these wonderful ideas of both unity and diversity that we see in humanity, we see in creation. And we these things that seem so potentially disparate or disconnected are not because they are all held together by the one God who is three in one. So this organicism, this theme of the organic, uh, which brings us to this wonderful idea of unity in diversity is so central for Bobbing's dogmatics, for his ethics. And it's, it's this kind of permeating theme that comes all throughout. One of the things that you've mentioned um, early on is kind of the emphasis on those anthropological questions for Bobbing. But it's one of those things that even as we look at ethics today, I think that one of the central questions to really ethics in general, but kind of all of the big major questions, social, political, and moral questions we're asking today are what does it mean to be human? And that is a fascinating emphasis that I see not only in Bavink, but a number of theologians and ethicists, even like Carl Henry, who's had such an influence on my life, is the centrality of the image of God. And so I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit. Obviously, this is kind of a defining aspect of Bavink's ethical theory, these anthropological questions, what does it mean to be human, and specifically, what is the image of God? And obviously, there's a distinct reformed understanding of the image of God. So I wanted to see if you could help kind of How does that doctrine kind of flesh out? Because I think for some, when they look at ethics today, they think we're too kind of man-focused. We're too anthropological. We care too much about man. We're not focusing on God. But you don't see that in Bob Fink, even though he's emphasizing the nature and role of humanity before and after conversion and what does it mean to be human. He's doing so in relationship to God as the creator, And so I always, when I'm talking to my worldview students, my ethics philosophy students, I'll talk about the nature of we can't understand who we are unless we understand who God is because we're created in his image. So thus we have to understand who he is to understand ourselves. But if it doesn't even end there, it kind of pushes us out into the world and understanding the nature of the world, the structure of reality. So I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit of the kind of the role of the image of God and these questions of humanity that play such a distinct kind of aspect or a distinct role in his ethical theory. Yeah, wonderful. And and you're absolutely right that this understanding of humanity as image is so central for him. In fact, when he gets to the section in Essential Human Nature on what is the content of human nature, he begins super definitively by saying human beings are made in the image of God and this has to be central. It is, he, he says, the assumption and it's the standard of true anthropology. And if we don't get that, we, we've lost the game already. And this is where I think this beautiful interplay between dogmatics and ethics can come. Because he has, of course, in his ethics, a very long discussion on what does it mean to be human that's all centered around humans as the image of God, humans as this body and soul made in God's image. But we also see that, of course, in Reformed dogmatics, where, again, he has I think it's a phenomenal section on thinking through a reformed understanding of the image of God. And the two play together so nicely, as one would expect that they would. Uh, But in in dogmatics, Bavink goes through this kind of four-part feature of the image of God that leads us to this very holistic account. He goes through kind of Christian history to think through how theologians have have understood the image in church history, and he finds a lot of value in each of those. He goes through things like 
you know, the image of God is centrally located in our soul, or the image of God is centrally located in our intellect and our rationality, or the intellect, the image of God is centrally located in our relationality, which are three huge themes that have come up throughout church history. And he says, yeah, there, there's some really important things there, but none of them, he says, are holistic enough. And so he wants to say the image of God is in our soul and the image of God is in our rationality and the image of God is in our virtues when we were made right and holy before God, before the fall. But he also wants to say the image of God includes our body. The image of God includes every part of who we are. And that is a really interesting take on the image of God. To me, it's a very compelling take to say there is no part of our humanness that is not made in the image of God, including our bodies. But then he goes even farther and he says, yeah, we can think of the image of God as an individual thing. He says human beings, at one point he says, human beings do not have the image, they are the image of God, which is really important for him, right? It's not like if I don't have the proper rational capacities, I no longer bear God's image. Or if there's something in me that is not able to be relational, I no longer bear God's image. He says, it's not something we have, it's something we are, which is a really important distinction for him. But then he says, yes, this thing is individual, but it's also collective which brings us back to that theme that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, this unity in diversity, this diverse humanity is united as one, one organic whole is the language that he uses. And together, he says, humanity as one organic whole images God in all of its diversity, in all of its many gifts and and all of these things. We see something of God together in humanity that we miss if we just look at individual humans, because he says the image of God is too big, too vast to be seen in simply one individual human. His language is, is much more beautiful than what I just said. It's it's fantastic. You can go to Reform Dogmatics Volume 4 to find what he actually says, which I highly commend to you. Yeah, he really emphasizes that this this individual thing that we are is also a corporate thing that we are together. And so that, again, brings us to your point that we are pushed out, right? Because the image of God is not simply an individual thing. It's something that we, we have and are and do together as well. And so we can see why this kind of fundamental understanding of humanity that takes its cue from the primary assumption that God is creator and this primary assumption that the one who has created is triune, so that the one who has created who is triune living in this perfect not living in, who is this perfect unity in diversity, has built that into the structures of creation. He has this whole archetype, ectype kind of relationship going on between creator and creature. So of course, we don't do this perfectly or absolutely, but we bear the kind of vestiges of it, he says. And then this assumption of God is creator, God who is creator is triune. Triunity is perfect unity in diversity. We see that unity and diversity in creation. The whole human is the image. And then that image is not only individual, but collective has such a driving force in his understanding of ethics because it both talks about our individual duties, but then our collective duties. So we're not just talking about personal ethics. We're talking about social ethics. We're talking about society because all of this is implicated in anthropology. 
Yeah, I love that because one of the things that I've done in some of my research as of late, especially, is focusing on what is the image of God and how we define it. And obviously, there are, you kind of hinted at kind of those three prevailing views in terms of a substantive view, a relational view, as well as uh, the functional view. And one of the things I've done in my research, and this is kind of causing me to want to go back into Bob Inc. and pull a little of this out, is... I've been heavily influenced by like Robert Spayman out of Germany, as well as John F. Kilner um, and others who seem to argue for more of a status-based approach to the image of God, that while it's manifested through these attributes, those attributes don't actually consist of the image of God. We are created according to the image of God. Obviously, Scripture tells us in the New Testament that Christ is the true image of God that we're created according to that image and that that is kind of our purpose or our telos is to become more like Christ and to become not only are we his body and a new creation, but that process of sanctification. And so even this little conversation here is saying, man, I want to go back and kind of pull and see how Bavink's dealing with this. Uh, because I, again, I think this is one of the most pressing questions and one of the most important questions of ethics broadly, but specifically of Christian ethics today is that kind of anthropological understanding, which is such a key aspect to, and we don't have time to dig into it, a worldview or as Bob Inc. will say in his little orange volume, uh, well, now it's orange because that's what Crossway came out with, a beautiful little volume on Christian worldview is a world and life view, which I love that language as well. Obviously, that's deeply reformed. Um, there's so much there to kind of unpack and how all of this fits together in the nature of the Christian worldview. And we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, that's one of the things we've been talking for probably longer than most listeners are used to on the podcast. Um, and I feel like we there's just so much more we could talk about and even questions that I've cut along the way uh, that we haven't been able to get to. But one of the things we always do as we wrap up our conversation is spending a little bit of time talking about some recommended resources. I think for some listeners, they're familiar with Bob Inc. They may have read something like The Wonderful Works of God, or they may be familiar with his dogmatics, maybe his ethics. And others are going, this sounds fascinating. Like I want to, I want to get to know this man and his work better, but I've never kind of been exposed to it. What are some resources that you would encourage listeners to dig into, whether it's essays or books or even kind of other reformed ethics that are going along at the time that may be more approachable. What are some recommended resources if someone wanted to dig a little bit deeper on some of these topics? Yeah, wonderful. There are a whole host. And I mean, one of the one of the real riches of Bavink is that this three-volume ethics certainly is a very comprehensive view of of Bavink's ethics from his own hand. And I should say it's a comprehensive view at a particular time in Bavink's life, right? Because of course we are translating this and editing it as a manuscript, which means it wasn't his final version. Uh, and that needs to be kind of recognized as we work through, as, as a reader work, works through this, that this wasn't Bavink's last word on ethics because he left this as an unfinished manuscript. And so we can imagine that there are things that he might've tweaked or changed, but this is very, it, it's very Bavink in, in tone and scope and approach. So you're really getting a great sense of him, but he wrote on ethics at other points in his career as well in much shorter, <laughs> shorter versions. And two of my favorites, I've mentioned this theme a number of times, and so I'm going to camp on it for a little bit for a second here. But two of my favorites are essays that he wrote in 1885 and 86, and then another essay that he wrote in 1918. And both of those are essays on the imitation of Christ, which of course in Christian ethics is such a central theme. It's not usually thought of as a central theme in reformed ethics, though 
Calvin himself has actually a lot to say about imitation, including my favorite line of his from a commentary on John, we are to be imitators, not apes. Uh, So John Calvin himself had a lot to say about imitation and included it in a central part of of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is also seen in this little golden booklet of the Christian life, a condensed version of part of Calvin's Institutes, where he talks quite a bit, actually, about the imitation of Christ. But Bavinck talks about this too. And for Bavinck, it is even more central than we see in Calvin. And he talks about it in Reformed Ethics. And so that portion of Reformed Ethics is beautiful. But he also talks about it in these two essays, 1885 and 86 and 1918. And there, especially in 1918, you see Bavinck grappling with the realities of life at that time. And 1918 is a hard time, right? We we think about you know, the realities of war that are swirling all around him and these big questions that things like the First World War bring up for Christian thinkers and especially for Christian ethics. And both of these essays, which you can find translated at the back of John Bolt's dissertation, actually, um, so they are available in English, walk through Christian history on the imitation of Christ, thinking about things like Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ, which is such a central kind of text in Christian ethics in the English world and walk through a whole bunch of historical postures towards the imitation of Christ and then give us Bavinck's view, tying together the law, which functions so centrally in his ethics, and the imitation of Jesus. So he does that in those two essays, and I think both of them are wonderful and a great introduction to some of the way he both grapples with Christian history and gives his own kind of normative, unique, reformed take on things. Another essay that I I would recommend is one of my favorite essays of Bavinck on the Catholicity of Christianity and the church. And there, what he gives us is this really beautiful picture of his understanding of the relationship between grace and nature, an understanding that plays such a central role in both his dogmatics and his ethics that grace is restoring nature. And in the Catholicity of Christianity in the church, he, he gives just a wonderful outline of what that means and why it matters. And so getting a sense of Bavinck and why why his takes on ethics land him where they do, uh, because grace restoring nature is such a prominent theme there, getting to know Bavinck's view on that through the Catholicity of Christianity in the church is another essay I would highly commend. Another edited volume of Bavinck's essays, uh, his essays on science, society, and religion, that might be the wrong title, uh, but it's close. <laughs> he he has an, a little essay in there on Christian social relationships and principles, which is another really good kind of way to take Bavinck and especially his views on Christianity and society. Uh, we see his appeal to the Decalogue. We see his appeal to Christ as example and Christ as savior. And then he kind of gives his own take again on what it means to be Christian in society. It's another really wonderful one. There's what I would say for Bavinck, those essays on the imitation of Christ, the Catholicity of Christianity in the church, and his Christian social relationships essays. But I also think alongside Bavinck, not quite at the same time, if you wanted a contemporary to Bavinck thinking about reformed ethics, you'd really go to Heisink, who is quite inaccessible to English readers. There is a small translation of his work on the fourth commandment that gives a nice flavor for what he's up to, uh, but the rest of it is really quite inaccessible to English readers. 
But there's later thinkers, both on the Dutch side of things and on the North American side of of things in the neo-Calvinist world that also have, I think, really nice takes, a bit shorter, a bit more accessible on Reformed ethics. One of them is Dauma, who I already mentioned. He has two books. One is um, on moral conduct, and the other is called, in English, The Ten Commandments. Both of them are really nice primers on a kind of overarching reformed take on Christian ethics. The other thinker, and I I think the the North American reformed and evangelical worlds are deeply indebted to him, is Lewis Smedes, who wrote this very short, wonderfully accessible book called Mere Morality. He has a lot of other books on things like forgiveness, which are all wonderful. But Mere Morality is his primer on Christian ethics, where he again goes through what does the Ten Commandments say? Why does it matter for us today? But I will say in both Smedes and Dauma, what we don't get is Bavink's unique, I think, insistence that yes, the Ten Commandments is central, right? All of volume two is about the Decalogue, but the Ten Commandments is so important and it shows us the way of life in God, but it's lived out, he says, in the living law. It's lived out in Jesus. And for him, tying those two things together is really central. And we see a little bit of that in Smeeds, a little bit of that in Dauma, but it comes out so pronounced in Bavink. So while I think Smeeds and Dauma are wonderful, reformed, ethical voices to read, I don't want to say they're doing exactly the same thing as Bavink, though they're certainly working in the same tradition, doing many of the same things. But that, I think, really unique insistence from Bavink that how do we imitate Christ? We imitate Christ by living out the law, which is kind of the heart of his ethics. What does it mean to follow God's way in our life? It's an imitation of Christ, and that's normed by the Ten Commandments, which is, again, why we see so much on the Ten Commandments. We see that really, really centrally and really, I think, uniquely in Bavink. get a great sense of that in his ethics, wonderful sense of that in some of those essays that I talked about, and then really nice companions on reformed ethics that are shorter and a bit more attuned to the particular challenges of the 21st century from people like Smeeds and Dauma. Yeah, this has been immensely helpful and deeply fascinating, the whole conversation. And one of the things we'll make sure to do for listeners' sake is uh, those essays, along with some of those books, we'll make sure to link to those in show notes, along with both of the volumes of Reformed Ethics, as well as the past episode that I had you and your husband on, talking about Calvinism and kind of a secular age. This is a book that you guys released, I think, last year. And we had you guys on. It was a fascinating conversation talking about some of the ways we apply kind of this rich understanding, this rich uh, tradition to a lot of the questions that we face today, especially in a more secularized age. So we'll make sure to link to that past podcast episode as well. But Jess, I want to thank you. One, for this podcast has been such a fascinating conversation and interview, um, but also for the work that you do. It's so important. It's always encouraging to me to see your name appear on a lot of these things and knowing the hard work that you're doing. So thank you for that and the ways that you serve the church. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for this conversation. What fun it's been. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing with the podcast and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jess and learn more about her work on Herman Bobbing's Reformed Ethics, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. 
This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.